There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. So, just like our political leaders, Podsafe the UK is on its summer recess. And by the time you listen to this, Coco, you will be one week into your honeymoon. Oh, yes. <laughs> wow. That was a lot sleazier oh, than I'd yeah. hoped for. That was considerably sleazier than I'd hoped for. It's not going to be a sleazy honeymoon, actually. It's quite active. There's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of backpacking involved. A lot of trekking. I'm going to bring my hiking shoes, which... It's not synonymous with a sexy time, You've got hiking shoes. Oh, I've got hiking shoes, yeah, yeah. I always forget you're one of our great outdoorsmen. <laughs> I'm the only ethnic in the countryside. Here I am, walking <laughs> it's around. Just, it's you and Anita Rani. <laughs> yeah. the, the only Asians in the countryside. In fairness, though, I did get these camping shoes for a music festival, which yeah, I guess right. makes it a bit more palatable. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, it's going to be quite busy. The main thing for me is that I get to not be in Britain. That's the main sell. Yeah, sure, The love sure, stuff sure. is great. Marriage, yeah. turns out, wicked. Yeah. But not being in Britain, elite. That's a real bonus. <laughs> yeah. That's what a are you doing for your recess? Uh, I am, uh, I, 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 as we know, um, have now officially become an uncle to match right, my okay. sort of general vibe yeah. uh, as like every, the world's favourite uncle. <laughs> uh, I'm now literally someone's uncle. I, I imagine I'll be spending some time uh, getting um, shot on by a baby. I'm sad that we didn't think more about the fact that this is summer recess or I would have brought you a white shirt to draw on. <laughs> Too niche, best of luck in all your an- endeavours, then just do like a little cock drawing. Uh, maybe international listeners uh, can verify, is that something that happens on the last day of school across the world? Because on the last day of school here, people write on their white shirts. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, for our listeners, don't worry. Even though we're away... We're not away from your ears too long. So we're recording this episode for you to enjoy. It's a conversation, but hopefully not too difficult a one, with the activist and author Gina Martin. That was a joke, by the way. It's a reference to the name of Gina's new book. It's called No Offence But, How to Have Difficult Conversations for Meaningful Change. A quick run through Gina's CV. She successfully campaigned for a change of the law on upskirting, and she's a writer and equality campaigner. Oh, also, fun fact about Gina, she uh, was nominated for an OBE and she rejected Rejected it. Hi, Gina. Uh, how are you? I'm good. How are you both? It's so good to be here. I, I've known Gina for a very long time. Oh, yes. really? Yes. Because yes, yes, I, yes. I went Nish. to university. Yeah, Uncle Nish. <laughs> <laughs> Gina's one of the first people I was a semi-unofficial uncle to. Oh, really? Well, so I went to university and very good friends with Gina's sister, Stevie Martin, who's Got a you. great comedian. So, Gina, what bad advice has Nish given you over the years? <laughs> Do you know what? Not a lot, to be honest. You were always very supportive when I was in Durham not drinking around all of you. So I feel, <laughs> I always felt so out of my depth and so intimidated because everyone was so cool and you were always so kind. And that's just my review, my real life review Aww. of Nish. Yeah. That's so nice. Um, what are you doing at the moment? I, I, I know we're talking to you from down under. Yes, I'm in Melbourne. I live in Melbourne now. I've learned, you know, I've got used to not saying Melbourne because apparently that's not right. 
And um, I said that for the first month and then that got corrected swiftly. Um, I live here now, yeah, and I'm writing and I'm training in facilitation and I'm working just like I did in the UK, really. I'm really lucky because since the pandemic, everyone's very comfortable working remote. So I'm kind of doing all the stuff I did in the UK just from upside down. And I'm getting ready to leave in a couple of days to come right back to London and do my book tour. So I'm very excited. Well, 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 look who's come crawling back. (laughs) Tail between her legs. They always do. They always come back to... His Majesty's United Kingdom. I <laughs> see. I can't get. I can't get that right yet because I've if been it, away. Yeah, I, I've I've ended up sort of. I keep calling him King Prince Charles. Like it's 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 a lot. <laughs> it's a huge thing to like. It's a huge thing to like move beyond. Yeah. Um, so you're coming back here to uh, to talk about the book. Um, mm-hmm. We've decided to get get the jump on you. You have. You've got right in there. This might be the first time I've really talked about it for longer than five <laughs> seconds. So this is exciting. Okay. Well, we'll give you ten seconds now to talk about it. Okay. It's really good. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> it's really really good. You should buy it as well. Conversations. Twenty phrases. The whole progression. I've got ten amazing writers and advocates and activists writing with me, and I hope it will make you feel confident to have conversations that are hard. <sighs> wow. That was really fast. That Thank was like you. Twister. That Remember was... that rapper Twister? Yeah. <laughs> no one's ever compared me to Twister. <laughs> well, t- Coco constantly is in a fight to reassert her credentials as a young person, but every cultural I don't reference. Think talking you- about Twister. Yeah, exactly. This is what I mean. Every cultural reference you bring up. The other day, I was in a taxi and they were listening to some new music, and it came up on the radio. Little Dirk, the name, the name of the artist, came up. Little Dirk, and I was like, oh, oh, that's it. I'm just getting back in my camping shoes. It's too late for me. So I'm done. I'm out. I can't do Little Dirk. Okay. Um, But anyway, uh, back to activism, Gina. Um, One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was uh, practical activism, teaching activism. Do you think a person can be taught to become an activist? That is a question I've never been asked. and I love that question because, no, I don't think you can be taught to be an activist. I also think there's a lot of uh, kind of commercialization and misunderstanding about what activism actually is. And usually people come to this work and we call it the work because it's really a choice, like a life choice, right? Like it's like living actively in your view of the world and your principles and values and trying to like shake things up and change things because they matter. And usually it comes to that from like a personal experience. So I think Mm. for it to be really authentic, it has to come from your belly. Like it has to come from you, something you've experienced, something that you're angry about, something that's like impacted you. And then that way... A, you don't run out of steam. B, your best place to be someone who can help like shape a solution. And C, you're not like picking things to choose, right? Because I think we'd be in a pretty bad situation if we had people being like, I'd like to change something so I can be seen to be changing it. So you can't teach someone to be an activist, but you can share skills, uh, like strategies. And that's often what we do in like the activism community. We share, we don't hold cards close to our chest, right? So we can all like learn and get better at what we're doing. Mm. What what kind of skills do you mean? I mean, I I I know that that's almost like a whole separate podcast conversation that I've just asked you in one single. <laughs> that's question. my next book. Cheers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what what's an example of some of the skills that activists that you sort of share amongst yourselves? Well, depending on what your work is, you're going to have strategies that you use. So, like for instance, a year after the law change, I was working with Naomi Nicholas Williams, who is a model, and she was being censored on Instagram. Her pictures are being taken down. Right. Um, she's a plus size black woman and she's being censored because of her body. And the algorithm was saying that she was like salacious and showing too much skin, but at the same time had, you know, 
a, an unending stream of thin white women on the Playboy account, fully frontal, nude, and that was fine. So it was this real policing of bodies, depending on who you are and what your identity was. And I was able to be like, okay, hey, I think if we use the right strategy here, if we can turn kind of public momentum and a single-minded message into momentum to pressurize this institution or this business, and then we can work with them to start to figure out what part of their um, policy is like censoring women, then we can get together and we can make this campaign. It can happen. And that looked like, you know, knowing how to write a press release really well, like knowing how to set a timeline for a campaign, um, knowing how to have an elevator pitch so you can tell someone really complicated things like legislation or legalese in a, in two sentences. So many millions of ways to do it, but each activist has their own strategies that we've worked or have and, and they can pass those between groups and therefore the movement gets better because there's more people with skills involved and we're, you know, cross-pollinating essentially. Gina, I don't want to go over too much old ground with you, but I just think we should clarify because it was obviously a massive news story in the United Kingdom. We inexplicably have American listeners that we are Mm. trying to shed every week by making increasingly (laughs) obtuse references to British culture and politics. But just for the benefit of those listeners, just quickly summarise the law change that you directly affected. And also it, it comes back into you saying that activism often comes from a specific personal experience. Can you just briefly summarise the upskirting law change that you you kind of drove through? Absolutely, yes. So in 2017, I was 25, 26, about 10, 26, I was at a festival and with my sister, Steve, your friend, and I was in a group of, I was surrounded by a group of people pre-pandemic and a group of guys were hitting on me and my sister and I said no. And essentially they worked together to take photos of my crotch. So they stuck the hands between my skirt and took photos of my crotch and they shared them in the group around me. And I was lucky enough to see one of them looking at the picture, took the phone, handed the phone, the picture and one of the guys into the police and was told by the police that I, if I chose not to wear knickers, it would be a graphic image, but because I did choose to wear knickers, there was probably nothing they could do. Nothing would really happen. And I, three months previous to that, incident I had had a stalking case that had been dropped by the CPS after a year and a half so I'd been in this you know this reality for four years of essentially being terrified and being at the kind of hands of men who were making my life very difficult because I was a woman or because they wanted something from me and when the police decided to do nothing about the upskirting that I'd experienced I'd I was working in advertising at the time and I decided to kind of take all the skills I had from advertising and apply them to creating a national media campaign and a legal campaign to change law. And I ended up working with a law firm and creating a political strategy. And I worked on that every day for two years and essentially changed the law, the Sexual Offences Act, to make upskirting a specific offence. And from that, France and Gibraltar also changed their laws too. And we had a big cultural conversation about upskirting and non-contact sexual assault. And so that's probably what most people know me for. And that's where my campaigning journey started. And it started because of that personal experience. We'll be back in a moment with more from our guest, Gina Martin. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavoured toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. 
The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Campaigning's a really long and terrible slog. Mm. And I think one of the things that I, I remember when the law came in for upskirting, thinking like, oh, finally, because, there were, you know, the world of the, the digital world was moving so quickly yeah. and the law and the CPS weren't keeping up to date with the intimidation that women were getting uh, online or just through the use of digital devices. So I remember at the time being like, oh, finally, and hopefully next we're going to see revenge porn, which we did, and hopefully we'll see other things as well. Um but since that time, you know, there's not been a lot of prosecutions for upskirting, which is not surprising given that the rape conviction rate is, uh, I think it's 1%, something like that. Mm-hmm. Do you, as an activist who campaigned so long for that, how does that make you feel? It's a really hard one because there's this thing when you're doing something like that, like campaigning like that, and I didn't have any legal or political experience. I was doing it just as a victim and as someone who cared about it. There's this disbelief that you'll ever be able to finish the first bit, which is like make people care enough about the thing. And then there's disbelief that you'll be able to turn it into a like a, a effective campaign. And then there's disbelief that I'll be able to finish it. And it, there was many points where I didn't think I was going to be able to finish it to change the actual law. And so when the law changed, I was so... I mean, now, I'm, I'm now 31 and I'm just about getting to grips with the effect it had on me in terms of personally. Like I I, re, I was really unwell and I was really, mm. I mean, I had rape threats for two years. I was dealing with like the most horrendous abuse for two years. I had, I was working full time on like 24 grand and getting up at 5am every morning and trying to change. It was just working with politicians, the sexism in parliament, just there was so much going on. And so by the time I changed it, I was like, okay, now I can like go back to a life that's sort of healthy and I can like live a regular life. And that was silly because obviously that didn't happen. I was going to go back to my job and then everyone was like, write a book. And I was like, I'd love to do that. (laughs) So so my life obviously changed. And then from that point onwards, there was a lot of, you know, I worked with police constabularies. I worked with CPS on data. I worked on freedom of information requests to try and find out how this law was working. And what we noticed, what we saw was that there was a, obviously a massive uptick in awareness and there was a big cultural conversation which should happen, which I don't think we can often, we often give the credit to because we can't measure it. But like mm-hmm. a, a lot of the, the progress we see in our society is from cultural change, like collective consciousness shifting, and then we turn that into political momentum. So I was really proud of that. Mm. Um, and then what we also saw was that one in three of the prosecutions made after the fact, after the law change, were of perpetrators who were perpetrating significant or repetitive violent sexual offences. So, you know, the first man that was prosecuted was a prolific child offender, essentially, who was found with 250,000 indecent images of children on his devices, but he was perpetrating upscaling at the same time. And so I knew from, you know, I collected thousands of stories during the campaigning, and I knew that we were seeing this action, but we were also seeing it parallel to other things that you can't prove it when you don't have the data and it doesn't exist in law. Mm. So there was those kinds of things with CPS. I was like, okay, this is important. This matters. But there came a point, I think, personally, 
where I had to let go because I can't make an institution essentially do their job. I can't, it doesn't matter how many conversations I have, uh, you know, rape is essentially decriminalized in the UK. It's 1.3% yeah. prosecution. So like it got to the point where I was like, I have to choose to be able to be healthy and, and move and do cultural work that hopefully will stop young people having these behaviors and attitudes and turning into the type of men that use sexual violence as a weapon to control people. I'd much rather be in the prevention work because at least I'll be able to get out of bed every day and I'll be I'll be well and also I'll be getting there earlier than trying to force institutions that quite clearly don't have our best interests at heart. And that's what it had felt like the whole time I was doing that campaign anyway. Mm, that is so fascinating to hear you talk about that difference between cultural change and institutional change because my journey, I mean, I haven't done anything as uh, profoundly brilliant as you, but even just in my work as a journalist talking about issues, I have sort of gone slightly the other way where obviously being a journalist is about cultural change, right? And now I find that my desire to like have a chat with my racist uncle is much lower mm. than it previously was because I'm like, well, what's the point? He'll have other crap opinions. Um, but actually maybe I'm better off changing my the opinion of my MP and getting him to care more about this issue. So my sort of, my kind of own journey has now been much more focused on the institution. So it's really fascinating to hear you talk about that. I suppose, am I right in thinking it's it's both, right? We need both. Oh, one hundred percent. Both, and and I think in activism, like you, you are a sort of, you're part of a sort of decentralized collection or family of people globally or in your society that are all working on different parts of the puzzle pieces, right? Like that's the whole point. Like it's not just you. And I think I found that uncomfortable as well in the upskirt thing because it was all like. I think there was an expectation. I was waking up, bed every morning in a red suit, like, smash the picture out here. And it's like, I was actually like working with loads of people and I still do. And I'm part of this big family. People are putting different puzzle pieces down. So like whichever mm. way you find that you can do that effectively and you can still have a life and you're not crying every day, I think is a pretty good place to start. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you found, do you think you found a bit, a sort of, balance with it again i'm i'm i know your sister i know your family i know that it has been stressful for you and stressful for them dealing with that with all of with the fallout of all of this kind of stuff do, have you been able to find because I, I do think i don't want to dwell on it for too long but i do think it's worth people listening understanding that there is like an emotional impact to these things totally. that like it's it, that it it does take a huge amount out of out of the individual um, involved, and do, have you? Do you feel like you've got a better balance and a sense of like? I mean, in terms of like mental health care support, do you feel like that's something that you've been able to put in place now? Yes, I feel like in the last year and a half, I've started to do much better at that, and I appreciate you saying that because I think with specific types of campaigning like no one's no one's glamorizing and looking at like welfare workers who work in communities no one gives them the time of day but with someone like me of my social location who looks and sounds like me who was doing the type of campaign I was doing that kind of stuff is very glamorized I think and I think there's a kind of um you know oh David and Goliath and and she took on the Lauren one and like those headlines are very like sparkly but like behind that there is a lot of difficulty and there's a lot of pain to it and I think I've got to the point now where just on a very simple uh through a very simple lens I actually now get to work in spaces where I'm in rooms with people who care about this stuff and I see things change whereas when I was in parliament I was in rooms with people who cared about optics and lied 
and would say support you in the press and then wouldn't take a meeting with you or you know I got patted on the head by a male politician yeah, yeah. and you'll know if I, I I reckon if I with telekinesis now I looked at you Nish I reckon you could guess who it is but I'll <laughs> tell you later but um you know it's just like there's there was so there was so little humanity in in that institution, and now I get to be in rooms with young people who are like say the ridiculous bit out loud so they can get to the bit that really makes a difference. And I see you can see people be transformed by the work I'm doing. Now. I get to actually see it, and that means that there's hope at the end of the workday. Mm-hmm. Like I leave and I'm like, this is doing something. This is working. And actually, you know, who am I to minimise the difference that makes to one person who has how many hundreds of people in their immediate sphere of influence? They're going to act different. They're going to make different choices. That really matters. And just because we can't measure it doesn't mean it doesn't matter, you know? It's just, it's it, it's always very inspiring to talk to you, Gina. And there is also an element of it that's a little bit dispiriting based on, because we also had a conversation with Mary Black, who's a similar age to you, is a similar person who got involved mm. because, out of conviction and is now stepping away. And, and, and actually, I think described the what was the phrase she used to describe the houses of parliament oh, it was sociopaths it, and bullies yeah she yeah she said mm. she described working in the houses of parliament as working with bullies and sociopaths and actually we also had another conversation where she said I'll here's a story about an mp and I'll give you the name later so <laughs> yeah. it's like there's a couple of slightly dispiriting parallels but to keep the sort of focus hopeful do you feel like with the work that you're doing, you're starting a chain reaction that ends in institutional change? Because if you can change, if you can affect cultural change, that will eventually drip feed down into our institutions. Yeah, well, I think it's the grassroots up, right? Like it's the, it's the. I feel like the trickle down thing is difficult, but I think the grassroots growing up is better. Like we see... If I take an institution or an organisation whose work I genuinely believe transforms communities, like I work with Beyond Equality, they have they work in corporates and unis and schools and they go into rooms with young men and they have incredibly difficult conversations with young men about masculinities and like, what does it mean to be a man? What should I actually learn from my father? And like, why? what do I think success is? And what? how do we use power? And, and like those rooms and those kinds of conversations are genuinely changing the minds of these young boys. And those young boys are going to grow into men. And we know that men are responsible for 82% of sexual violence. We know that that men are responsible for upwards of 90% of all violent offences. So, like, we are actually, if we can get early to these types of conversations, so we can build, like, critical thinking skills, not telling kids what to think, but telling them how to navigate all this wildness that they're going to come across on the internet, in real life, how they're going to show up in their relationships, how they're going to connect with the boys, how they're going to show vulnerability, like... That's massive. And I've seen that it makes a difference. Like I've actually been in the room. So I do believe that it makes a change. I can't, the problem is, is I can't, it doesn't make a headline. You know, no one can write a headline about that. It isn't sexy, but it's, it's like, but it's good, honest work. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, it really is. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. 
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. You're listening to Pod Save the UK, and we are delighted uh, to be joined uh, by Gina Martin to talk about uh, her new book. Um, it's trying to facilitate difficult conversations, and it's called No Offence But. Um, so it, I feel like this book would be very useful for me. As a an inveterate ruiner of parties with my ceaseless need to argue with people, um, I think this would. I feel like this is a useful book, and also a book whose very concept feels like a personal attack on me. But um, it's it is really important that we have difficult conversations in a, a polarized world. So just just talk about the kind of impetus behind this kind of this kind of book, apart from being a specific guy to stop me from screaming at people. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah, um, yeah. I I started writing it pre-pandemic or beginning of the pandemic because since the law change I've done lots of speaking and lots of workshops and sessions since then with all different types of people and there's one question that comes up every time I go anywhere in real life and people come to me and go how do you respond to and then there's a phrase and they're like without crying or screaming it or losing it or or, you know how do you articulate yourself with those kind of conversations and I just thought well can I make something that you can pass into the hands of someone else or you can sit with and feel after you've read it more confident to do that. And I took, I'd say, eight of the most common phrases around misogyny and sexism and sexual violence that I hear all the time. So, you know, you're not all men's. You're, if you don't want attention, you should cover up, all those kinds of ones. Uh, boys will be boys, all these kinds of things. And then I also took a few that I wanted to... Um, dig into so there's a couple about you know what we heard in the pandemic like the government are doing their best are they yeah um and you know the police are here to protect us and these big like narratives that we have socially um and then I invited 10 other writers and activists and advocates who I really respect and who I've worked with because it didn't feel like you can write a book about gender inequality without writing about all the things that are so woven into the nature of that, like so intersecting and so um, contextual to it too. So we have 10 other writers who are writing on everything from, oh my gosh, from uh, transphobia to ableism to uh, the f- fair fashion to feminism and men, you know, uh, what feminism actually is in terms of um, an inclusive lens, uh, what kind of white feminism is. There's so much in there from these writers and how we view refugees, like so much stuff in there. And the idea of it was to get all these writers together to like explore these phrases that we hear that halt progression. Because when someone says them, you feel like, yes, but it's not the point. And you really struggle to articulate yourself in response to them. How do we explore them, where they come from, what the impact of them is? And then give some prompts, some information uh, and context around them for when you respond. And then also I've made a resource actually from facilitation and what I've learned in training and facilitation to give to everyone who buys the book at the events. Because it just feels like there's got to be 
a, a way to have these conversations, which are so emotional for so many people because they are living in the reality of these systems every day. And those they're talking to are so defensive. There's got to be a way to at least try and get past these types of phrases and get into something slightly deeper and slightly more constructive. And that's what the book aims to do. Well, Gina, did you ever watch SMTV Live? Are you joking? It's all I watched. (laughs) Okay. I loved it. (laughs) Great, great, great. So you are of the same generation as me where we're partial to a challenge. And Mm. so, you know, obviously you've been working on this book. So now I'm going to bamboozle you with a a listener question. Okay. Just throwing it out there. Let's see what happens. Okay. So here's the email. It says, how do you talk to a lifelong conservative voter who's empathic, kind of heart, generous individual on a personal level, who actively want the world to be a fairer place and will demonstrate this on an immediate community level, but who simply cannot bring themselves even now to vote for anyone else because lower taxes, traditional values, and a sense of practicality, i.e. that just isn't how the world works. Oh man, that's so frustrating. That's incredibly hard. Um, I think, okay, so first I would, if it was me, I would start to think about how I'm going to frame the conversation, how I'm going to approach the conversation. So the first thing I wouldn't, there's lots of wouldn't do's, I guess. The first thing I wouldn't do is I wouldn't start a conversation. I wouldn't be talking about policy and I wouldn't be talking about the actual political party. And the reason for that is, is that I'd go, I'd take an indirect route. So the conversation can actually start and we can start to have a conversation about the things we care about without it getting into like very, very specifics about politics. This is mind blowing for me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Same, it was for me for a long time. Gina, surely you should start by screaming, why the fuck did you fucking vote Tory? I know, I know. But that's the the problem is like, I want, that's what I want to do. And that's what I have done for a long time. My first thought when I was thinking in my mind, what would I do? I just thought to myself, it's a good thing I've got waterproof jackets from my camping days because someone will chuck something in my face. <laughs> Water in the face, wine in the face. It's bad that my first thought was, what would I wear to get, like, custom yeah. pie here during this moment? <laughs> That's very SMTV Live, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Again, one. for the American listeners, SMTV Live was a uh, Saturday morning children's show <laughs> that uh, ran for a long time and introduced the world to Cat Dealey. You know, Cat Dealey's very famous in America. Oh, she hosts, she? like, is a dance she? reality show. Cat Dealey's killing it, man. Wow. This oh, is I'm not... Ha- the point. I love her. We Sorry. all love Cat Dealey. They- we're all very pro Cat <laughs> Dealey on PSUK and we're thrilled at her ongoing professional success. Another tidbit for the American listeners is they had a uh, game show on SMTV called Wonky Donkey. <gasps> and I just, I, I still to this day don't really know the rules, but I just feel that our listeners in America will appreciate the phrase Wonky Donkey. Weekend so. kids television in the late 90s and early 2000s was the Wild West. Yeah, it, yeah, was yeah. Anything. it was chaos. It was it absolute was, chaos. It, it was people in their 20s with visible hangovers struggling <laughs> through an ill-thought out for that. But listen, let's ask Gina her expert <laughs> advice before yes, we yes, start yes. about this. So, yeah, so if this was me, I'd probably, I'd, I'd instantly be thinking about the long game. So I'd be thinking, right, so like, I'm not going to have one conversation that's going to change things there. And I also want to keep it fairly de-escalated. So I don't want to go into a conversation, it escalates, we start to argue, and then it's about winning because mm. then the conversation will never continue. So like the way that we would probably do it in facilitation is to like plant seeds over a long period of time. So uh, talking about uh, immediate uh, impacts of Tory policies in that person's life or in my life without labelling them as that and having a human conversation about what those impacts are. So like if I'm being impacted by a Tory policy or someone I care is being impacted by a Tory policy, I'd be talking about what that impact looked like just in conversation. Just like, 
you know, in the kitchen talking about what's going on in our lives. And I continue to have those conversations and then I probably start to link it to Tory policy slowly. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's like, I sound like I'm tricking someone, but like this is fully how I would have that conversation. I wouldn't want to go in directly because it would escalate and it would get very passionate and very political, even though these things are political and they always will be. But I would start to talk about the impacts of Tory policy in relation to us, the family dynamic people we know. I would also probably try and notice the things that person cares about. So for instance, like I remember having a conversation with someone who just didn't give, well, partly didn't believe that climate change was happening. And I found out down the line, I was like away with some friends. I found out a few days later that we're like a really avid skier. And, and so was able to like start to have a conversation around like how that would impact like their, the thing they love the most. Like, you know, like most ski slopes now we're losing snow. Like we're not able, yeah, we're not going to be able yeah. to ski. Like the thing that you love, and they were like, oh shit, really? It was like, yeah. And then link that to a larger conversation about climate change. <laughs> but like essentially you just, you, you essentially, I think want to have a, a, a non-reactive but considered conversation with someone about the impacts of the choices they're making in terms of the political party that they support and link it to your lives personally and then be able to have a slow burn conversation about the impact of that and and the danger of it and why you disagree with it and try and keep it very personal in terms of how it affects you. But I think the arguing and the winning and then it gets into a political football usually makes the conversation very hard to have. So no one's really hearing each other by that point. Do you know what I love about that? I love that because it... It assumes that people are reasonable and ultimately good people, that they want the best. I believe that um, in my heart, even though every time I turn the news, it's very challenging. Oh, man, um, so challenging. And I think you have to, you know, at, at the heart of this is is a sense of optimism and a, a sense of love for your fellow person, rather than I think sometimes how it's framed when you try and persuade people to our woke agenda that we are, we're trying to diminish their opinion or say they can't think a certain way. It's, it's actually not that. It's, it's, it's much more like, I know that you are a caring, c- compassionate person and I would be interested in engaging with you in this conversation to see my, what might come out of it. Do you, that, do you think there are some people that can't be spoken to though? 100%. And that, I, I mean, I think there's a context. The problem, the difficulty with, I found also with, you know, writing this book and, and, and even just having to write a blurb for it is like, People are always going to think there's a silver bullet or there's a there's a mm. solution or a recipe to having a constructive conversation. There isn't. There's context. There's relationships. There's baggage. There's identity. There's social location. Like those things are all going to come into it. And in the resource I've created for this book, I think the questions we ask ourselves before that conversation are the most important. So you know, instead of now trying to argue with or, or win or change the minds of X, however many people I work with or come into contact with, it's like, who are the people in my life that I think I could have that conversation with, that I could work on over time, that would be able to get there, that kind of quality over quantity mindset? Mm. Because you burn out if you're trying to change everyone's minds. But, you know, if I'm having conversations around masculinities with like my dad, with my partner, with some of my male friends, and then uh, people that I feel like it could be constructive and things could change, then that's actually going to have an impact. However, there's also like what you've named there and what you've brought up, which is I think very important, is that there are conversations in which we're not safe and there are conversations in which um, there is just harm being done. You could have someone in your family who's a Tory voter, but they're, they're, they're um, parroting really harmful, you know, uh, transphobic views or really harmful, you know, um, homophobic views and you're a queer young person and it's it's not down to you in that situation to change that person's mind, right? This book was kind of, I guess, created 
with dominant groups in mind who have access to dominant groups who are using kind of lazy, repetitive cliches and narratives because they're easy, because they have these ignorant, bigoted mindsets and we can sort of disrupt them with constructive conversation. But I think it's really important to say that not everyone has to do this. Not everyone is safe to do this. And so it's kind of like, do you have the privilege and the location to be able to have it and who with and play the long game with it, like try and get there with them. And that's where that compassion comes in, right? That compassion piece, but it doesn't have to be with everyone and it doesn't have to be all the time. It is funny how people can get quite defensive with these things. And I mean, you know, I think you're probably the same as me, like, you know, in my long journey of getting into to politics, like I've had opinions that I regret now because I wasn't informed enough yeah. about the issues mm. I have. I'm British, man. I say sorry every 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I say sorry to a lamppost. It's no problem for me to say sorry to someone being like, oh, actually, I didn't read that story. I wasn't aware of it. Soz, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's strange how this can really challenge people's sense of self because you mm. were talking earlier about people having emotional baggage. Do you think these are the sort of conversations genuinely we can have without a professional like yourself in the room? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think we can develop in our relationships, if we're looking at talking to, to specific people that we want to work on that with, I, yeah, I think we can. Um, I think there can be progress, but it can get better. But it's it's always going to be challenging. It's always going to be hard. But there's also something about the fact that I know people have tried to have these conversations and that conversation maybe hasn't gone how they've hoped. Mm. But I'm trying to not give too much personal detail away when I say this. But, like, <laughs> that, but that person has been like, uh, defensive and then someone else has had a similar reaction and they've started to think oh that's multiple people now maybe there's something I have to think about here so there is a seed that can be planted from these conversations but it doesn't it's, you're not going to get from A to Z in that conversation ultimately yeah but I'd much rather be um encouraging us to to try and to step up and to try and feel confident in having difficult conversations with a dose of compassion, try and be constructive, then not do that. Because the amount of people that want to, that ask me that, the amount of people that I feel like a, there's a hunger for it to be able to um, articulate ourselves. And especially for women with the chapters I wrote, with the, the eight chapters that I wrote, I just feel that so many women have so many experiences backed up in their heads and in their hearts and in their bellies. And they are eating away at them. And so when they hear someone say, not all men, it's like the stove boils over because it's, it's there's so much they've taken in. And so it's understandable that we we lash out or we just, we want to police or we want to like put someone in their place because we're feeling so much because we're living under these realities and these realities suck. Mm. But I think if we can, you know, help each other to have those conversations, I just feel like that's I've seen them happen. I've seen facilitators do it. I've seen people in rooms with facilitators who have never do it, done it before at the end of the session be able to stand up and have a conversation that they couldn't at the beginning. So I just believe in people's ability to grow and I just would really like to create some kind of fertile space for them to learn how to do that. I think that's a wonderful and optimistic note to end on. Um, the book is called No Offence, but How to Have Difficult Conversations for Meaningful Change and it's out now. Gina, I'm a big fan of you. I'm a big fan of your entire family and I'm a big fan of Cat Daly. <laughs> no one's ever said that on a podcast before. <laughs> I'm a big fan of both of you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Thanks so yeah. much, Gina. Oh. 
That was a great chat with Gina. Great chat. Really Love good. Gina. I mean, has it changed you? Do you think if we have if we have Suella Braverman in here, you think you can have a constructive conversation? I'll bring in the relevant waterproofs in, obviously. I think we could bring Suella Braverman in here. We would have a great chat. Yeah. And I would be on the first train to the nearest <laughs> offshore holding facility. <laughs> I'd I'd be on a barge within by by nightfall. <laughs> Um, a lot, uh, a lot to ponder about, uh, and a lot for me to consider. I was taking notes through some of that. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there are there are so many specific conversations that I've had very recently <laughs> that immediately burbled up as soon as Gina started talking know, was- about how to try and de-escalate. I was like, I. It's not that I don't attempt to de-escalate. I actively try and escalate these things. <laughs> Why? Because I'm a sort of... man of ceaseless fury. Right. I've got bottomless depths of anger. Is it that you feel that, like, you you know, it would be more honourable to settle it with a duel? You know no, I, mean? I definitely don't think... I, I don't think at this point in my life I've learned enough about myself to know there's no point in me trying to settle anything physically. <laughs> It, it, I, I'd probably end up Someone's being... Someone's like, let's take this outside, mate. And you're like, no, I'd no, I'd rather no. keep Pull it inside. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the pen is mightier than the sword, uh, but not really. And I don't <laughs> want to get stabbed. Look, um, that was a great chat. And we're going to be back uh, next week uh, with a brand new episode. And if you want to get in touch with us uh, about any of the issues, anything political, or just sort of specific questions about Coco's honeymoon <laughs> and uh, subsequent travel advice and uh, advice on... <laughs> Advice on being an ethnic outdoors. You can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. We're loving your messages, but we'd also love to hear your voices as well. So why not send us a voice note on WhatsApp? Our number is 07514 644572. So internationally, that's plus four four. 7514644572. If you're new to the show, remember to hit the follow on your app and you'll get a new episode every week. And just finally, the British Podcast Awards has a public vote, the listener's choice. And if you'd like to vote for us, I mean, we would certainly like it. It's free and it's easy to do. So just go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting. Again, anyone can vote. So all you have to do is go to this website. We'd appreciate it very much. It's britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting. Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop. Additional production assistance was from Annie Keats Thorpe. Video editing was by Will Darkin and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer David Dagahi. The executive producers are Louise Cotton, Dan Jackson, Madeline Harringer. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter and TikTok where we're at Pod Save the UK or on Instagram through the Crooked Media channel. And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Spotify, Amazon or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? 
Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.